I have been thinking about windstorms and rooting. It all began with that windstorm last week on the day of our Christmas caroling party at the Merrill home that knocked out power for tens of thousands across Seattle and hundreds of thousands across the region, including some of you, including some of you overnight, I think. And then in my Tuesday morning yoga class, my instructor Wendy reflected on the winds and then invited us into sort of a rooting, grounding practice. And then the next day was that strange and devastating tornado in Port Orchard. So, thinking about windstorms and rooting related to the sermon. So on Thursday, I was on my way into the office to write that sermon, and I was driving out of our parking lot, rolling over all sorts of debris that had been blown down by yet another gusty wind just that morning. And I'm thinking ahead to the sermon and pondering windstorms and rooting and thinking, wow, this is strange that there's so much happening around us, wondering if it's been wind stormier than usual this year. It seems like it has, but I don't know if that actually bears out in facts or if that's all in my head. And then I pulled up to the stoplight in Aurora at Aurora and it was out. I'm listening to KEXP on the radio and then it suddenly goes to static. This is bizarre. Then I switched to NPR, carried on my way. The next stoplight was working. NPR started doing something kind of fundraising. Um, and so I switched back to KEXP, and the music was back on. Okay, the stoplight's working, the music's back on. I'm clearly making too much of this. Um, and then at that moment, KEXP went out again to static, and the next stoplight was blinking four-way stop, causing Seattle drivers to behave in all sorts of mad ways. Okay, so I'm not making too much of this. I'm not exaggerating. And by the time I sat down to actually write this account that I have just shared with you, I checked email, which is one of the many procrastinating techniques I employ when I'm writing a sermon. Uh, And the new one in my inbox, because there was only one, because I just checked it a little while ago. This is procrastination. This is not actually checking email. The one new one in my inbox was from the Seattle Times subject, what to do if the power goes out. No kidding. (laughs) Strong winds are rolling through western Washington, the email read, and thousands lost electricity today. So this is Thursday. This is a whole week plus of these windstorms. Here's how to stay safe when the power goes out, including information in several languages on avoiding carbon monoxide poisoning. I clicked through. I am procrastinating. Uh, And discovered that indeed they included carbon monoxide information um, in English, Spanish, Chinese, Vietnamese, and Somali. And at this point, it's starting to feel downright apocalyptic. Not only are we experiencing actual windstorms, in these days, because we are. But that has me thinking about all the metaphorical windstorms in addition to the actual windstorms that we are in the midst of, that are thrashing and gusting all around us. And those windstorms include our national politics. They may include our family and extended family dynamics. And for many of us, holiday travels and or just the busyness of December schedules. So I'm pondering the windstorms and rooting. 
And one thing that I've shared with you before, even this year, um, though not quite in these words, is the ways in which the season of Advent serves as a sort of root for me in the general windstorms of December. Um, So I'm always grateful for this space and time where we gather in the midst of Advent. So what will root us in these blustery, windstormy days? Well, I'm looking to our scripture, the one that we heard this morning, and I'd like to suggest a few possible roots from Matthew's story of the birth of Jesus. Some roots that may study me, may study some of you in these days. Some roots. The first root. God blesses all manner of unconventional family. Here's the biblical windstorm. Mary is engaged to Joseph. Mary finds herself pregnant. The child is not Joseph's. The child also turns out to be a pretty special kid. Mary and Jesus are clearly family, biological family. Mary gives birth to Jesus. But Joseph needs to be adopted in. Joseph experiences God telling him that it's okay, that he should go ahead and allow himself to be adopted into Mary and Jesus' family. And so he is. They become a blended family, a chosen family, an adoptive family. The first root to study me in the storms of these days, God blesses all manner of unconventional family. That blended, chosen, adoptive family of Jesus forms him. It shapes who he becomes as an adult. Until, as an adult, he's creating family with a band of friends and disciples with whom he travels. Who are my mother and my brothers, he provocatively asks one day, offering an earth-shattering challenge to the traditional, biologically rooted structures of family in which there's no wiggle room to let anyone else in. Adoption becomes a critical metaphor for God's family, for early followers of Jesus. Adoption, where political borders and all other restrictive boundaries are rendered obsolete. We can be and are family across any border that anyone might throw in our direction. The first route to study me in the storms of these days, God blesses all manner of unconventional family. Here's our windstorm. This time of year, many of us gather with family, whether biological, blended, and or adoptive. And I don't know what it is, but the holidays often seem to amp up whatever dysfunction is already present in a family system. Also, some of us don't have family or can't see our family for any number of reasons. And the holidays certainly amp up the expectations all around that we're not quite whole if we don't have a family with whom we can gather. And in all of this, chosen family becomes essential. I think of the woman in my community meal group in Chicago. She was single no partner, no kids, whose family lived at a distance, and when she was diagnosed with cancer, she needed family, and we were it. 
I think of uh, Jennifer Delante's Facebook post a few weeks ago. I didn't ask Jennifer's permission, but since you posted on Facebook, I figure it's public. (laughs) Of the child in this church who looked up to her one Sunday morning and said, Granny, where's my mommy? (laughs) Oh, isn't that wonderful? How many of us don't have biological grannies and grampses close enough? And we need the adoptive ones here in this church community and in our other communities. I think of any of us who might be walking through births or illnesses or just coordinating school pickup schedules. From the big to the mundane, we need families that we have chosen. And what joy to know that God blesses the many and myriad ways that we are and choose to be family with one another. The first route to steady me in these days God blesses all manner of unconventional family. The second route, Christ is born in the midst of awkwardness. (laughs) Here's the biblical windstorm. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph could have won the awkward family photo contest of the first century BCE, and that's putting it charitably. Because Joseph did not just need to be adopted into the family. They all had to lean into the public scandal their awkward, blended family represents. Mary's early pregnancy put her at risk for public humiliation at best, which in the story we learn is what Joseph planned to do, to give her the most charitable dismissal possible. And it put her at risk of complete destruction at worst. Joseph's decision to heed God's call and go ahead and be family with her and with Jesus put him also at risk for public humiliation. They would have been the gossipy, scandalous talk of the town. And that was before they gave birth to Jesus in a barn. Imagine that awkward family photo, complete with sheep and strewn hay and animal dung. We have grown overly familiar with this scene. We have porcelainized it into precious moments nativity sets. But for a minute, imagine an actual barn. That's precisely where God chooses to be born, where the holy is birthed. The second root to root me and steady me in these days, Christ is born in the midst of awkwardness. Here's our windstorm. A holiday family dinner table. (laughs) It's telling that this has become such a familiar trope. Now certainly not every one of us who gathers with family finds it to be the stuff of awkwardness. Some of you were lucky enough to land some pretty amazing families. Go you. Even so, I'm guessing there's no such thing as perfection. Even those families that look great from the outside. It's probably why all I have to say is holiday, family, dinner table, and some of us chuckle with recognition. Whatever more or less awkward tables you find yourself gathered around in the coming days, whatever biological or blended or adoptive or chosen families with whom you gather, how might we be attentive to Christ being born in the midst of that? How might we recall that God didn't choose to be born in perfection? How might we stay attuned for the holy to be birthed in the midst of 
animal dung and awkwardness? How might we even take an active role in midwifing or birthing something sacred in the midst of our own awkward family photos and dinner tables and holiday conversations? The second route to steady me in the storms of these days, Christ is born in the midst of awkwardness. And the third route, Joseph uses his privilege to legitimize the revolution. Huh? Provocative? (laughs) Here's the biblical windstorm. Without Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, the original holy family, would have been exponentially more vulnerable to the criticisms and the onslaughts of the world around them. Ponder for just a moment how many obstacles are thrown in front of a young single mom and her child in our day. And then multiply that several times over. I was reading the reflections this week of a male blogger who was wrestling with Matthew's centering of Joseph in the story of the birth of Jesus, whereas Luke centers Mary, who seems clearly to be the more interesting and important character in the story. So he's wrestling this with this. Why is Joseph so centered in this version? And then the more he lived with the text he reported, the more he began to see how the story of Jesus may have something critical to teach folks like us. He writes... It provides a lens through which people of privilege can think about our proper role in the revolutionary work of God, which in this story at least is being carried out by a woman granted no privilege in her society. Indeed, as liberation theologies have taught us well, this is almost always the case. God most often engages the world through those pushed to the margins of society, those who bear the marks of privilege must learn to act accordingly. So, rather than dismissing Mary and walking away, which was entirely within his rights, Joseph, as we've already explored, heeded God's call to be family. But perhaps more than that, um, next week we're going to jump back into the genealogy, which are actually the first verses of the first chapter of Matthew. But suffice it now to say that it's presented as Jesus' genealogy through Joseph, who is not the biological father of Jesus. Isn't that bizarre? Back to the blogger. Without Joseph, Jesus is the son of a woman of unknown lineage. With Joseph, Jesus is the son of David. And this seems to be Joseph's main function in the story of the Messiah's birth. He doesn't start the revolution. He doesn't nurture it in his body. He doesn't bear it into the world. He can do none of that. What Joseph can do is use his privileged status to give the revolution legitimacy in the eyes of the people. That and to accompany Mary, through whom God has radically upended our world. For those of us who bear our own marks of privilege, he writes, perhaps it is our role to do the same. The third route to steady me in the storms of these days, Joseph uses his privilege to legitimize the revolution, to provide companionship to the revolution. Here's our windstorm. Too many people walking our streets, populating our world, who are leading the revolution for their liberation 
and ultimately for the liberation of us all, but who are denied access to power, to privilege, to resources, and a means by which to amplify their voices. Yes, we need chosen family. And we most definitely need chosen family, not just with folks who look and speak and think like us. We need to be family with those who challenge us, with those who are organizing for their own revolutionary liberation. So might we, like Joseph, accompany those like Mary, through whom God is radically upending the world. Third route to steady me in the storms of these days. Joseph uses his privilege to legitimize the revolution to companion the one leading the revolution. And finally, if none of those worked for you, a fourth route, a mother route, in a name, Emmanuel, God with us. If no other route proves helpful in steadying you through the windstorms of our world, our politics, our holiday schedules, and our family reunions, may this simple yet profound mother root ground you. God is with us. That is the central proclamation of this story. God is with you. God has come in Jesus to be love incarnate, love enfleshed, God came to us in that way so that we might know with each breath, with each awareness of our body, that there's an opening to experience God in me, with me, love incarnate in human flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Some of you know I'm married to uh, Seattle Scrooge. Tiny Tim would say, God with us, everyone. Indeed, there's nothing else that may root you in these days. May these, may this root, this mother root, allow you to notice love, to experience love, and God willing, to give birth to love in the communities of which you are part. May it be so. Amen. I would like to invite Don Diaz forward to share with us the story. It's a story of his family finding welcome, finding some steadying roots, finding some new family in the windstorms of migration. Welcome, Don. May God bless you in your speaking, and may God bless us in our hearing. Thank you.